Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. All roads seem to lead to Iran right now. Last weekend, three U.S. service members were killed in a drone attack in Jordan. The White House attributes that attack to the Islamic resistance in Iraq, a coalition of militias backed by Tehran. As we know, Iran also supports Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthi rebels in Yemen, both of whom have played a role in worsening the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. And of course, Iran backs Hamas, which started the latest round of fighting with its attacks on Israel on October the 7th. The White House has already said it will retaliate against Iran in some fashion, primarily for this past weekend's attack on U.S. forces. As of this taping on Thursday, February 1st, we don't know exactly what form that attack will take, but it is worth pointing out that the Biden administration faces considerable domestic pressure, especially from the right, to attack Tehran directly. We also don't know how Tehran might respond to potential strikes on it or its assets, or how that potential response could lead to other regional escalations. As with any conflict, there are lots of unknowns here. But I thought it would be helpful today to just try and understand more about Iran's motivations, its domestic situation, its true relationship with its proxies, such as Hezbollah, and what kind of ability or appetite it has for a longer, wider war. Especially at a moment when some voices in Washington are calling for bombing Tehran, I think it's really important to stop and understand what the other side is thinking and why, and to speak to experts. So I turn to two of them. Sanam Vakil is the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, and Vali Nasser is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He has in the past advised several U.S. administrations on Iran and the Middle East. And for FP fans, I should also point out, he once served as a senior advisor in the Obama administration to Richard Holbrook, a former editor of this magazine. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us, share it with a friend, or try us on video on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's dive in. Sanam, I'll start with you. Uh, let's quickly just discuss Sunday's attack. What is Islamic resistance in Iraq? How are they connected to Iran? Tell us more. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Ravi. It's a pleasure to be here today um, alongside Valley. The Islamic um, group uh, behind the attack on U.S. servicemen um, on Sunday uh, that killed uh, these three um, young men have come together as part of uh, a vanguard um, group of forces inside Iraq. They are part of the axis of resistance. 
um, which you described in your opening. And inside Iraq, there are a, a variety of militias or non-state hybrid actors, some that are part of the political establishment elected into government and some that aren't. And this coalition that has come together isn't directly connected to Sudani government, but of course, the network is large and broad. And this group has been a very active uh, since um, the Gaza war has begun, using pressure uh, and escalation, particularly against the United States, to in turn um, press for a ceasefire in the Gaza war. And this has been broadly uh, part of the axis of resistance strategy. Um, and we could maybe talk further afield about how the Axis operates and, and how they're um, unique because they're in multiple countries, but the domestic dynamics of each country and the domestic vulnerabilities, but also opportunities in this country um, doesn't result in the Axis responding in the same way across um, all of these different territories. Vali, let me bring you in. Uh, Sanam mentioned uh, an axis of resistance. You've just written a big essay about exactly that. Can you describe uh, and expand a little bit on what she was referring to there and why this axis matters? Uh, I mean, first of all, again, thank you for, for having Sanam and I on, on, on this panel at, at this time. Uh, I mean, the, the term axis of resistance has been much more recently uh, used by Iran, Hezbollah, to describe uh, this loose network of militias, organizations, political forces. It even includes the Assad government in Damascus, who essentially share a, a strategic view of, of, uh, uh, of that their interests lie in, in challenging the, the U.S.-backed order, challenging U.S. allies like the Gulf countries, as well as to challenge Israel. I mean, they're bound together by the command and control structure that the, the Iran's IRGC Quds Force has put together. But there is also significant amount of uh, domestic interest and local interest as well. Uh, for instance, as Sanam was mentioning, this uh, Islamic re uh, resistance in Iraq, which is a loose network of varieties of militias, some are closer to Iran, some are not. Some have been integrated into Iraqi security forces. Uh, some, some are outside of it. Uh, generally, is, is represents the, uh, a side of Iraqi politics. In other words, they're not Iranians, and they're not essentially robots entirely controlled by Iran. First of all, they are now are increasingly uh, relying on, on, uh, on financial, uh, basically capabilities that are raised domestically within Iraq through thuggery, mafia kind of activities, extortion, criminal activities. This is actually one uh, uh, unintended consequence of U.S.'s maximum pressure sanctions on Iraq. Now, it's just because Iran can't pay them doesn't mean they go away. They've been basically becoming more financially independent from Iran. And also, they now uh, have a stake in the Iraqi state. They have become the representatives of anti-Americanism in Iraq especially since the United States assassinated their, their, their main leader, along with General Soleimani, uh, uh, three years ago, four years ago, they basically are, are part of their political agenda uh, and the way they manipulated to get a greater foothold in, in Iraqi politics, be able to pressure the government, has been to ask for U.S. forces to leave. And every strike, counter-strike, essentially accentuates this. And so uh, uh, Tehran does have a broad strategic control over them. 
Uh, it does supply them with know-how, information, intelligence, uh, and weaponry, and also technological trans transfer of technology so that they can build their own cheap drones, easy missiles, etc. But it is not correct to just use this term Iran-backed, assuming that they're just completely driven by what Tehran wants. They do have independent sets of interests uh, that is about becoming a much bigger force in Iraq, uh, in Iraqi politics, uh, and using now the Gaza war uh, uh, to in order to leverage that within Iraq. That's fascinating. Uh, Sanam, let's, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. You know, whether we call them Iran-backed, whether we call them proxies, one thing that strikes me as interesting but also confusing is that clearly this strategy is in part because it allows for a sort of plausible deniability but it also seems that you know if some american policymakers rightly or wrongly are talking about directly attacking iran uh, whether the white house heeds those words or not is is a different question but it also seems like a, a thin deniability um in iran's case precisely because it is so well-known and, and we talk about these things so openly. So how does Tehran think about these associations, these backings, even though clearly, as Vali points out, it's not black and white, um, it's not complete control? Well, there are so many dynamics to pick apart here. And what's really interesting about this moment, aside from um, <laughs> the stress levels, the tension, the escalation ladder that we're on, is that this is really the first time we're seeing the axis of resistance um, work together so openly in a coordinated manner. And I think uh, this is something that uh, Tehran um, has been working towards um, over a number of years. Vali mentioned um, that in 2020, the United States uh, killed uh, IRGC Rhodes Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, who was really sort of the visionary in bringing these groups together. He also had deep and personal connections, um, investments with individuals across this network, and he had much more of a command and control structure for the organization. Um, and uh, in that drone killing, they also killed Abu Mahdi al-Muhandez, who was very instrumental in managing the Iraqi groups. Since their death, Iran has appointed a, a new um, commander named Ismail Ghani, and the the management of um, the axis of resistance has, has somewhat changed. There's been a lot of whispering and sort of observations that perhaps Ghani was weak or couldn't uh, manage these groups in the same way. I think what we've been witnessing for the past few years is a transition in the management um, from uh, a much more centralized system to a decentralized system. And this has led to greater autonomy and agency of these groups and the transfer of capacity, technology, everything that Vali described, um, and also a greater partnership with uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah through this process, um, a sort of diversification of power and um, management in order to take a lot of the onus off of Tehran. Tehran through this period of time also uh, was heavily criticized in Iraq and in Lebanon for the sponsorship of these groups. There was a lot of pushback domestically in both countries. There were protests, burning of the Iranian consulate, for example. 
in Basra. Um, and I think Tehran wanted to scale back its visibility as well through this period of time. Um, certainly, uh, Iran is the backer, is the patron, is the visionary of this system. And I think that uh, within the security-minded establishment in Iran that uh, retains um, authority over uh, of this uh, strategy known as um, forward defense and, and, and is directed to creating deterrence for Iran, pushing Iran's um, perceived threats away from its borders and into um, territories where um, Iran can exert influence. I think the feeling is that this strategy has borne fruit for Iran. It's protected Iran, and we can, there are of course nuances here because Iran has experienced challenges from Israel, we, terrorist attacks as well. But in general, Iran has managed um, theoretically to protect the frontier, to protect its territory uh, from attack from the United States and, and, and direct attack from Israel. So um, this policy is one that Iran has had that it's born fruit. And if you look at a map, and if you look at the position of the, positioning of these groups, um, the axis of resistance sits on all of Israel's borders. This is despite, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu's um, long-term sort of railing against Iran and, and calling himself Mr. Security. These groups are now um, all around Israel and deeply embedded in a number of uh, countries across the Middle East um, and also embedded in the political systems of the Middle East, in these Middle Eastern countries from Syria to Lebanon to Iraq. And if you look at the Houthis as well in Yemen, they have become a political force, whether we like it or not, um, through the course of the war there. Um, and strategically, these groups also have access to, uh, let's say, the Houthis sit on the Bab al-Mandeb. They've been disrupting maritime shipping. So, you know, they're uh, now a strategic force to be reckoned with. Are they... Um, proving themselves to be strong and resilient? No, not necessarily. There are certainly weaknesses that I'm sure Iran is absorbing and, and their strategy and, and tactical adjustments that will take place in the coming years. But um, this group has sort of developed and I think it's going to be much harder to unravel. Um, and that's a problem for the international community in the United States. But it's also... Um, going to be important to see how Iran adjusts its relationship because at the end of the day, in every sentence, this is an Iran-backed axis of resistance. And so Iran cannot absorb the constant pressure, the sanctions, the challenges um, all the time that it uh, bears for, for, for the creation of, of this sort of monster. So Vali, uh, this is clearly so complicated and these groups uh, that Sanam and you have been describing around the region, circling Iran, uh, somewhat Iranian-backed, uh, somewhat doing things that help Iran's uh, policies, but not completely controlled by Tehran. It's all very murky, perhaps by design. But what is the true line in terms of what these groups want? And you've argued uh, in the past that there's sort of a broader kind of anti-colonial sentiment uh, among these groups, sometimes aimed at Israel, sometimes aimed at the United States as well. And I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit more as we try to understand the motivations uh, of these groups and Iran's motivations amid that, um, just to understand, you know, where they place themselves in the current moment since October 7, what their goals are vis-a-vis -vis America. I mean, this this idea of anti-imperialism was, was part and parcel of the Iranian revolution since 1979. It came with Ayatollah Khomeini. That was a 
that was a strong argument he made that uh, he, he wanted the United States out of Iran, he wanted the United States uh, out of the Middle East, that the U.S. was was an imperialist power and that it was supporting Israel, which also had had uh, was act functioning in the same way in, in the region. Now, now that anti-Americanism, uh, you know, and the foundations of it is really an anti-colonial argument, if you would whether you like that argument or not, is now baked into the ideology of the Islamic Republic. And these groups that the Islamic Republic has, has basically given rise to over time, when they have sort of matured and gone, grown, grown up, like the Houthis or, the, or, or Hezbollah, are also basically feeding on the same set of ideas. But it, also, it is also true that as they appear on the United States radar and the United States hits at them, either designating them as terrorists, imposing sanctions on them, or militarily hitting them, uh, decapitating uh, members, et cetera, that, that then the, the anti-Americanism becomes much more uh, immediate and, uh, and urgent for them. It's no longer theoretical. I would say perhaps the Iraqi militias were not sophisticated enough to, uh, let's say, to, in 2020 to, to espouse a very clear anti-American uh, ideology, but after the increasingly direct confrontations with the United States, this has now become absorbed in the way in which they talk about Iraqi politics. It's almost like a, we don't see it that way, but they are sort of foisting a radical Iraqi nationalism, which demands the United States leave Iraq mm -hmm. because the United States is a colonial force, if you will. But right. behind this, as, as, as Sanam was saying, that you know, there, there is a much more complex set of uh, issues. Like if we looked at the Middle East right now, what's happening in, in Gaza war and Israel's base rhetoric is an existential threat to uh, Hezbollah. Hezbollah has much more skin in the game right now than does Iran. And, and therefore, uh, 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 its reactions to Israel, to Israeli bombardment, to whether Israel can roll over Hamas overnight and then turn its attention north uh, to Israeli demands that uh, that Hezbollah evacuate southern Lebanon and move beyond the Litani River, you know, it's not directed from Tehran in a way. Uh, in a sense, uh, it's not just uh, the view that, that Iranians have about the United States. Hezbollah itself believes that if it wasn't for their resistance, that, that uh, Israel basically would be having settlements in South Lebanon right now. So, so there is... Uh, this, this ideology is now baked in, if you would, and it brings all of these groups and Iran together because they share a world view uh, of the fact that that there is a, there is an order in the Middle East that is uh, that is sustained by the United States, which has imperialist ambitions. That Israel is its agent, and this order it, it tries to exclude them, eliminate them, and they basically represent, if you would, some form of nativist uh, nationalism against imperialism, even though we think that the, that the um, fight against imperialism long ago died in most of the third world, it still very much uh, resonates in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And in the Gaza war, they have found new life because, the, because the, within the region, the Gaza war is seen in terms of Israel's settlements, in terms of Palestinian fight for, uh, for resistance. So, you know, this is, this is, this is part of it. Whether, tactically, whether they decide to hit a U.S. base today or to posture in a particular way, I think they view themselves at a, in, in a grand war with the United States.
and with Israel. And therefore, uh, their decisions are based on, on whether they preempt or deter, or they try to rally the region around the fact that they are carrying the, the torch of anti-imperialism against the United States. Mm. I just want to remind all of our um, viewers and listeners around the world, it is Thursday, February the 1st, um, at about 11.20 Eastern uh, U.S. time. While we uh, have been uh, on the air here, um, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has also been speaking to the press, um, and uh, we were expecting him to offer some details about how the White House might react uh, to Sunday's uh, drone attack in which three U.S. service people were killed. We have not received any details in the press so far, is my understanding. Um, but he has said that the U.S. will take necessary measures to defend ourselves um, without offering further specifics. Uh, as of now, that is my understanding. Um, but Vali, uh, President Biden has said he knows um, what the U.S. response is going to be just hasn't announced it yet. What is your sense of the options that the White House is considering in response? Um, and, you know, as you mull that, do you get the sense that there is a, a deeper understanding of the, the broader trends that you've been describing uh, about the, the anti-US and anti-colonial sentiment, as it were? Uh, well, I think the White House uh, and European governments, et cetera, understand that the mood in the Middle East is not sympathetic to Israel and is not sympathetic to the United States. And that uh, it, would not be, it would not serve Western interests to get deep into a much larger war in the Middle East, not only because it's election year and the American people don't want another war, but also because the United States would be doing so at a time which would be very difficult to rally support for, even if uh, three American servicemen have been killed. Because the dominant theme in the region uh, is not Iran, terrorism, Islamic extremism. It is what's happening in Gaza. Those are the images that, that, that dominate. Now, the United States has said repeatedly that it does not want a larger war, that when it reacts to the axis of resistance, it's trying to deter. Now, the choice that the president has to make, essentially, is that when he chooses a target to hit and how hard it hits it and whether he actually tries to draw blood from Iran or just the uh, militia groups that were responsible, what is the American objective? Is the American objective uh, a, a retribution? Is the American objective to restore deterrence? Or is the American objective to go, take the war to Iran, which is actually what a lot of Republicans are asking, basically go for the mother look. Uh, that essentially means a much larger war. There is no way in which that, that you, could, you could do that without risking a larger war. And I think the greatest risk here is that just as the Iranians may miscalculate, as Sana mentioned earlier on, so can the United States. I mean, those who are advocating going after Iran right now, uh, uh, are, are ignoring the fact that when the United States killed uh, uh, General Soleimani and Mehdi al-Mohandes in an effort to send a very powerful signal to Iran to back off aggressive behavior in Iraq, it was the, the Iranians retaliated by launching the largest barrage of missiles that the U.S. troops have ever faced in any war in their history, which could have killed many more Americans, right? And it's it wasn't Iran that actually backed off at that point, 
it, it was alone, it was also President Trump that let it, decided to let that very, very provocative uh, counterattack by Iran to, to basically go, go by and not do anything about it. Uh, this is a message that also the Iranians learned, that the United States does not want to go to war uh, with, with, uh, with, the, with Iran or with anybody in the Middle East. And that's why a few days ago, the commander of the uh, Revolutionary Guards said, we don't want a larger war, but if you attack us, we'll attack you back. So the president, and, and also I have to add that the, that the White House has not actually come out with, with evidence that Iran ordered the attack in Jordan. It is just like October 7th. When October 7th happened, everybody said, well, you know, it's Iran behind this. But in the end, it, the United States said in multiple, through multiple channels that actually they don't, they, Iran was responsible at many levels, but the Iranians may not even have known of the particular, of the date or the particular details of October 7th attack. So my sense is that the, that the president will not go for expanding the war. He will go for retribution and deterrence. And that means choosing a significant target, hitting it hard, showing American power, but being very careful not to invite a retaliation at this point in time and hoping that, you know, everybody cools off and that you don't, you don't basically put the opposite side in a position that they have to, they have to go big as well for their own reasons, which then will, will get us into what we don't want, which is an escalatory cycle into a direct war. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a very good discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Sanam, I want to take uh, one of our um, questions from a subscriber and put it to you. And this is from Samiha. Um, and linked to everything we've been discussing, she asks, how much influence does Iran actually have over Hamas, um, for example? And this is really important because, as Vali was pointing out, much of this could then lead to the form that, uh, you know, what kind of a response America has and then in turn, how Iran would retaliate or one of its proxies would retaliate to an attack on its assets. So what, what kind of a linkage uh, are you able to point to between Iran and Hamas that is public? 
Well, certainly that's an interesting question and one that we can dig into specifically. Uh, the relationship goes back a number of decades. Um, and, um, you know, oftentimes Iran's relationships are described to be sectarian uh, because many of the members of the axis of resistance are Shia Muslims. And uh, But uh, the relationship with Hamas actually shows that it, this is a, a, a different kind of axis. It's ideological, as, as Vali described. And um, Iran built very um, incrementally um, a relationship with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip, um, really opportunistically, uh, when Hamas was marginalized and isolated and building its base uh, in, in Gaza through the years. It, you know, Iran is... Um, uh, and it works in and by building a network. And I mean, that's how I would describe the axis of resistance. It's not just personal relationships and they don't just throw money at the problem. Um, they, you know, get to know individuals, they cultivate the relationships, they know the names of the family members, they work from the bottom up. I mean, um, it, it's... Um, uh, an important model to understand. And um, while they've built these networks, there have also been difficulties in the relationship. I mean, Hamas is not a natural partner for Iran and vice versa, particularly when Iran began to support Bashar al-Assad during the Syrian war. There were deep differences that emerged very publicly when Hamas criticized Iran for its support um, and and the sponsorship that you know resulted in in the killing of um, hundreds of thousands of Syrians, um, so there were um, a parting of ways very clearly, and Hamas looked for other resources and and um, but they they came back together again um, again when uh, out of necessity, and this is how Iran operates. It never quite lets the relationships go. It's always there. It plays the long strategic game. And ultimately, the group today are united against um, Israel, and, and the aim is um, obviously to bring a ceasefire in Gaza. Of, uh, above that, um, to preserve Hamas um, and, and make sure that the group isn't uh, completely destroyed. I mean, not for the uh, purpose of this conversation, but the, the war aims of destroying Hamas is, is quite a... Um, uh, a hard one uh, to achieve for Israel. Um, and so Iran, um, you know, seeks to maintain Hamas and the rest of the axis of resistance, the way they have operated since October 7th is to put slow and incremental deliberate pressure um, in different frontiers where possible based on um, their own vulnerabilities um, in the theaters in order to distract and to press, um, uh, to pre you know, increase pressure and uh, for uh, for a broader war in order to bring a ceasefire, and, and so it's been an interesting strategy. And um, as Vali mentioned, you know, Hezbollah is not really activating itself. If you look at the network, the most of the pressure is coming in Syria, it's coming in Iraq, and it's coming from the Houthis. Three sort of different territories where there is perhaps a bit more confidence, where there are more domestic opportunities, while Hezbollah is much more constrained. It's a political actor. Um, and that political actor, like Iran, since October 7th, has been very deliberate in repeating that it doesn't seek a wider war. It wasn't directly involved in the operations. But, that, you know, they, they would like to preserve um, their influence and ultimately show that together that they have been able to deliver a ceasefire, even at the risk of their own influence, at the, uh, the members of the groups um, and whatnot. Mm. And again, I just want to remind all our viewers and listeners that um, what we're trying to accomplish here today is to try and understand more about 
Iran's thinking, the thinking of all of its proxies, um, as we're now several months into uh, the conflict in the Middle East. And if America is thinking about attacking one of these proxies or Iran directly, as some some are describing, some Republicans have been saying very vocally, then who exactly uh, is America dealing with? To try and understand that is very important. And Vali, to that end, um, talk to us a little bit about Iran's leadership. They have, uh, I believe, uh, council elections coming up in March. There have been rumors about the Ayatollah's health. Uh, what is your sense of the stability of the power centers in Tehran and how that might be shaping policy choices? Well, uh, I mean, uh, so long as the supreme leader in Iran is alive and is functioning, uh, you know, the, the, the current situation is fairly stable. I mean, we had massive protests in Iran uh, led by young people initially over the issue of uh, freedom of dress for women over hijab, but then it became something a lot bigger. It rocked the, uh, the regime, uh, but in the end, you know, that they weathered that storm, that, that movement has dissipated for now. There's a lot of unhappiness in Iran, but there's no direct challenge to, to the established order in Iran. And, uh, and, and, but, you know, if the Supreme Leader was to get to be gravely ill or to pass from the scene without a clear successor uh, or somebody who can step into his shoes immediately, you know, you're going to have much more diversity of opinion coming to the fore in Iran. Not even over whether or not we should uh, uh, support the axis of resistance at all, but how do we support the axis of resistance? Just like in the United States, there's going to be different opinions about how to react to a certain incident in the region. I'm sure there are hawkish Revolutionary Guard commanders who, who would want to launch all the missiles they have right now, and then there are more uh, conservative ones who want to play the long game, as as, as Sana mentioned. And then there are there, there will be personal ambitions at play in the end, because ultimately, uh, uh, you know, policy is also a pathway to political power. I mean, right now, because of everything that's happening, for instance, the Quds force of the, of the Revolutionary Guard has become an empire within the Revolutionary Guards, much larger and more prominent than other divisions. The division that manages the missiles has also become extremely prominent. And right now, the Supreme Leader is able to balance all of these. The ambitions, activities, budget of the various factions of the Revolutionary Guard, as well as the various factions within the broader political establishment. But uh, if he were to pass from the scene, then we're, Iran will be in a completely new place. I would add to this also that he's been ruling Iran close to four decades. Uh, and at the twilight of his rule, at the end of his rule, he's not about to change, uh, you know, mm -hmm. ideas. He's not about to come and say this whole strategy of resistance, a building axis of resistance was wrong. He's going to preserve his own, uh, uh, you know, legacy. And he's, he's actually of the firm belief that, that what he's done is correct. Uh, at at a, re a recent uh, few months ago, he actually said that, China and Russia have not come to our point of view. What did they win? What did they gain? What did Putin gain by going towards the West? And mm -hmm. so basically saying, I was right all along. And so he's very steadfast in that sort of resistance, anti-imperialist view. And he's absolutely insistent on there's no wavering on that issue. 
And at the same time, much like General Soleimani, he does have certain personal relationship with, with uh, people around the region. For instance, uh, he and Hassan Nasrallah have a very, very direct and, and relationship. Nasrallah often doesn't bother necessarily going to Revolutionary Guard commanders when he wants something. He goes directly to the Supreme Leader. Or that, uh, you know, the Supreme Leader has an aura among the leadership of these groups that, uh, you know, a new person uh, would not have. So I would say uh, that, you know, the, it, it cuts both ways, that, that uh, you know, Iran is in a succession mode. I mean, he may not be sick right now. Uh, he may not be passing from the scene right now, but both he and the system in Iran are now in a succession scenario. And, and that definitely is the context in which a lot of these decision-making is happening. How risky should Iran pursue things? How much should it accommodate the, the, the United States? What does it actually want uh, from the United States from, from participating in, in, in the Gaza war that it has all, at this point in time? All have to do with, with, uh, with what's in the back of the mind of political actors in Iran. Mm. And Sanam, uh, you know, Valley touched a little bit on the uh, the protests of the last two years mm -hmm. which it seems like have have sort of been withstood uh, by by the regime so far but as we know I mean no country is a monolith and I'm curious for your thoughts on whether average Iranians uh, whether they buy into this broader narrative uh, that we've been describing this anti-american anti-western narrative is that popular? How does that play in as well to the fact that the West has sanctioned Iran um, for all these years that have clearly had an economic impact? How does all of that interplay with the government's relationship with its people? I think that's a really excellent question to try to dig into um, because there's a lot of nuance there. Um, yeah. You know, for Iran is about to celebrate its 45th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution in, in uh, just a few days from now. And um, every year that um, the, the government tries to bring people out in the streets and sort of commemorate the survival of um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, it's harder and harder to do that. And that's reflected not just, you know, in getting people out on the streets. It's reflected in the ballot box in every election cycle. There is a uh, lower and lower turnout for a system that prided itself on um, having that kind of electoral legitimacy in the Middle East, for example. And in fact, President Raisi in 2021, when he was elected, was um, elected with a, a lower than 45% turnout in a presidential election, which is an all-time low for Iran. And as Iran goes into parliamentary elections, I, uh, you know, have conversations with people inside the country, and it, you know, it's going to be very hard to rally people to come out to vote, um, really, because those of us that work on Iran and follow Iran have been saying this for so long. Um, there is a deep legitimacy crisis inside uh, the Islamic Republic. Like people are despondent, um, deeply uh, disappointed by um, the lack of governance, accountability, development, economic growth for the Islamic Republic. And there was real hope back way back when, if we can remember when the JCPOA was signed um, and sealed in 2016, the Iran nuclear agreement that was going to see Iran constrain its nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief and investment from abroad, there was real hope that this was going to lead to the opening of Iran from within Iran. And Iranians were banking and counting on that. 
That, of course, all fell to the wayside under the Trump administration, and we have maximum pressure sanctions. And through the course of this, this history, uh, we have seen multiple rounds of very powerful protests inside Iran going back well over 20 years. But the 2009 protests were political in nature. In 2017 and 2019, we saw economic protests um, that were, uh, again, also uh, quite strong and, and quite um, targeted against the political establishment, calling out Khamenei by name. And then in 2022, you know, just uh, um, over a year ago, um, into 2023, we had the protests inspired by the, the tragic death of Mahsa Jina Amini. And those protests um, rocked Iran in, in such a way. Um, I think Iranians feel so many things, clearly let down by their political establishment and their leaders. They feel a real disconnect um, between their aspirations and that of a regime, an aging regime of people that just are trying to hold on and survive and will do anything to stay in power, including killing Iranians. And that's how they're still there. They are not afraid to use force. And we see that in every protest that they survive because um, they do so uh, um, in, in a coercive way. But, you know, beyond that, they also feel left let down, I think, by the international community. And I think we should uh, point out that uh, maximum pressure sanctions, the withdrawal from the JCPOA has left people feeling um, isolated and abandoned. There's nowhere to go. And so either you leave Iran, and Iran has one of the highest brain drains um, globally, or you stay and, and you try to make it. But poverty has increased over 50% of the population um, is struggling to get by. You know, people can't buy protein, meat, chicken. These things are becoming um, inaccessible to ordinary people. Uh, inflation is at an all-time high. So here we are talking about the axis of resistance. I don't think that ordinary Iranians um, appreciate or celebrate Iran's ability to kind of stand up to the West or the United States and Israel. Um, what they would really like are if, and they've been saying this for decades. I mean, I can't, 30 years, you know, stop uh, investing in Gaza or Lebanon, um, give uh, our, the resources back to Iran. And there's a little refrain of, of that, that people chant during protests. Mm. Fascinating. Um, Vali, I want to circle back to, I guess, what we began this conversation with and um, last Sunday's attacks and the prospects of an American response. And obviously in Washington, uh, there's much debate about what form that response could take. Many of our subscribers um, are asking about Iran's nuclear capability as part of uh, this very issue. And I'll name one of them and their questions. Rob uh, Granitstein asks, is there any validity to the argument that it is better to take Iran on directly now rather than when they have full nuclear capability. Witness North Korea. That's his question, Vali. Well, uh, if Iran is going to end up being North Korea, uh, the, the, that, that uh, uh, you know, really falls on President Trump because, you know, the, the situation that we're in is one that he created. Uh, he came out of the deal. Iran has become much more aggressive on its nuclear enrichment has got much closer to being a threshold state. And at the same time, it has become much more hardline conservative and uh, authoritarian direct internally than it was even before, as Sana mentioned. And it's also become much more aggressive regionally. 
But, you know, there, there are no good choices here. I mean, taking Iran on right now uh, uh, means what? Uh, 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 in terms, first of all, you know, uh, Iranians are extremely unhappy with the, with the regime, but uh, and they may hate the regime, but their country is their country. Once Iranian blood is shed, you know, nationalism is a fickle thing. It actually may strengthen the regime. It may be a rally to the flag. We don't know. And secondly, uh, you know, Iran is orders of magnitude more difficult than Iraq. Uh, uh, you know, it's a country of 80 million. It's not flat like Iraq. It's capital city. It's two mountain ranges. And I don't know, I think 2,000 kilometers from the ne nearest port. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is armed to the teeth with missiles. It, it has, we don't know exactly what is its nuclear capability, really, because it, we're, we're in the dark. And it also, we're talking about several hundred thousand Revolutionary Guard people, as well as all another several hundred thousand militias in the region who are not going to fight for Iran, but because their own survival will be at stake, are, are likely to also get engaged in the war. So you have to sit down and calculate what does, it, what does the United States need in this war? How many trillions of dollars? I mean, the last one cost us, you know, minimally three trillion dollars. How many Americans will be dead? For how long will be we would have to basically be in in a in a situation like we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, except larger? What does that do to the war in Ukraine? What does that do to to our ability to contain China? So uh, uh, you know, in a way, uh, you know, Iran now is not a problem we can solve very easily with with one or two steps. It's a problem we have to find a way to manage in a way that, that doesn't tax American foreign policy in a very undesired way. Uh, you know, they, that's what exactly the Iranians understand. The United States does not want to go to war with Iran. Why? It's not because of any kind of altruism. It's because war with Iran itself has become a deterrence against the United States. And the United States foreign policy has put itself in that position. Uh, since 2003 invasion of Iraq, since failing to actually uh, manage Afghanistan and end up leaving and, the, and, and with the Taliban coming back, since coming out of JCPOA. And, and even right now, if you're sitting in Tehran, I'll close with this. When they look at the, the situation in Gaza, they say after three months, 26,000 Palestinians killed, Israel with all of its might and with American support has only killed about a third of Hamas. And Hamas is perhaps in Iran's eye, the, maybe the right now the most vulnerable, weakest part of this axis of resistance. In, in, a, in a way, the, the performance of Israel in this war does not make them scared that the United States is going to look at, look at Gaza and say it's easy to go to Iran. And that's a fact. That's something that, you know, as we contemplate next steps, we have to, we have to take into account what, what is the other side seeing right now uh, from us and from Israel's war in Gaza. And I hope this discussion has helped um, people around the world game out a little bit of how Iran might be thinking. Vali Nasser, Sanam Vakil, I learned so much. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Ravi. Thank you. And that was Vali Nasser and Sanam Vakil. As always, if you want to know who's coming up in future episodes of FP Live, head to foreignpolicy.com. As you know, we conduct these interviews live and on video, and we often plan them out weeks ahead of time. So next week, 
We have James Stavridis, a retired four-star U.S. Navy Admiral and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. We are going to discuss America's role in the wars in both Ukraine and in Gaza, and he knows a lot about both. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.